All right. Well, good morning, everyone. It is good to be together again. Happy Labor Day weekend uh, to each of you. Hopefully you get to get out this weekend and enjoy uh, some of the last beautiful weekends of summer and early fall. Uh, this morning, if you would please turn with me in your Bibles to Amos chapter 5. We're going to pick up there again uh, where we left off last week. And, and as I've been praying uh, this week and as I've been praying even this morning, uh, my desire is that God would really use his word. As we dig into his word, he would honor that and he would speak to us through his word. And so why don't we just one more time even just pray that sort of a prayer uh, before digging into Amos chapter 5. Father, we do, uh, we do value your word. We appreciate your word. Uh, we want to come and sit under it and have it speak to us. And, and Father, even now we acknowledge that uh, there are times when uh, to study your word and to read your word um, is painful. Uh, it challenges us uh, in, ma in ways that uh, we kind of want to rebel against initially and, and, uh, and pull away from. But Lord, we, we know that it's good uh, to come and to sit under your word and to hear from you. And so give us uh, the faith, Lord, to respond to the things that we see this morning. And as your, your Holy Spirit leads and directs, uh, Lord, we pray that in that faith, uh, we would have the courage to respond and to obey. And so bless our time, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we're in Acts chapter 5, we, excuse me, Amos chapter 5. We left off last time in verse 7, and so we're going to pick up in verse 8. But before we get there, let me just remind you, we're going to bring to a close today the first section of the book of Amos. There's kind of two sections of the book. There's nine chapters in the book. The first six chapters are a series of sermons that Amos delivers to the northern kingdom. Chapter 1 and 2 is one of those sermons. Chapter 3 is a second. Chapter 4 is a third. And then chapter 5 and 6, again, they com combine to be one sermon, even though they're spread out over two chapters. Then we'll come to chapter 7, chapter 8, and chapter 9, where sort of the, the flavor of the book changes, and it's less, less this these sermons, and it's more a kind of a narrative account of the life of Amos and the ministry of Amos and how he had all these visions that he, he spoke of and he delivered to the people and the response of the people to him. And so the, the, the book's going to change a little bit as we move to chapter 7. But this morning we go back to where we left off. Again, as I said, we go back to chapter 5, uh, verse 7. And let me just read this in the context. So I'm going to go back to verse 1, actually, and I'm going to read some of these things we looked at last week. Amos chapter 5, verse 1, it says, Now hear this word that I take up over you in lamentation, O Israel. Fallen, no more to rise, is the virgin Israel, forsaken on her land with none to raise her up. For thus says the Lord God, The city that went out a thousand will have a hundred left, and that which went out a hundred shall have ten left to the house of Israel. For thus says the Lord, verse 4, To the house of Israel, seek me and live do not seek Bethel, do not go to Gilgal or cross over to Beersheba, for Gilgal shall surely go into exile and Bethel shall come to nothing. Seek the Lord, he says in verse 6, and live, lest he break out like fire in the house of Joseph and it devour with none to quench it for Bethel. O you who turn justice to wormwood and cast down righteousness to the earth. Now, as we have been discovering throughout our study of the book of Amos, Israel was at a place in their history where we might say they were ripe for judgment. 
And for 200 years, 250 years almost, God had been sending various prophets to the northern kingdom, and he had been increasingly bringing a chastising upon the people, a disciplining process upon the people, but Israel continued to remain in their rebellious ways, despite the things that were being said to them, despite the experiences that were being brought upon them, they just continued to remain in their rebellious ways. And, and in fact, they began to spiral or continue to, to spiral further and further and further and further into a period of moral decline. And sadly, as we're seeing in this book, again, mention is made to the fact that they, would, they were refusing to listen to this call that God was giving to them to repent. And they, they had gotten to that place, I used sort of this picture in the past, they had gotten to that place where the, the cup of their unrighteousness had reached its full. And thus the only thing that could come to them would be uh, the heavy hand of God upon them in judgment. And the most heaviest of hands upon them in judgment would be the driving them out of the land and into captivity in a foreign land. Even with that notice in verse 4, Amos extends an exhortation to the people, seek me and live. Of course, referring to the Lord, Amos speaking for the Lord. Uh, he extends this invitation, seek me and live. Look at verse 6. He says, seek the Lord and live. Because perhaps, despite how full the measure of their unrighteousness was, perhaps the Lord in his mercy would hear and he would relent of the coming judgment. And thus he says, seek the Lord and live. Sadly, as we continue on in our passage today, we'll see that even with that most direct of warnings of this coming of severe judgment upon the Israelites, those warnings went unheeded. Uh, and just within a few short years, seven, maybe 10 years or so, uh, this threatened judgment would be carried out. Now that brings us to where we left off uh, in verse 8. And so I'm going to pick up in verse 8 of chapter 5. It says, who made the Pleiades and Orion? Now the Pleiades and Orion, they're too ancient. They're still around today. They're uh, constellations of stars in the heavens. You can go, you can look it up, and you can see them. I'm sure you can look up into the skies once you know what they look like, and you can see them on a clear night. And so Amos says here, who made the Pleiades? Who made Orion? and turns deep darkness into morning, and darkens the day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the earth. The Lord is his name. Who makes destruction flash forth against the strong, so that, the, so that destruction comes upon the fortress. And so right here in the midst of his sermon, what Amos does is he reminds his listeners of who the Lord is. He is the one, he says, that has made the great constellations in the heaven. He says a little later, he is the one who causes the light to enter in each morning and then to disappear again once more each night. He says a little further down in that passage, he is the one that causes the seas to roar and to pour out into the earth. Whether the inhabitants of the earth want that to happen or not, he is the one that does this. He is the one, the one that does all these things that Amos just mentioned, he is the one that the nation of Israel is dealing with. In interesting, he's also the one that the nation of Israel is dismissing either as too insignificant to pay attention to or too powerless to follow through with the warnings that he is giving them. 
And so Amos reminds them then of just who it is that they're dealing with, the one who hung the stars in the heaven, the one who brings the morning light and the evening darkness, the one that causes the waves to rage and the destruction to come forth. Now, listen to that. Does that sound like someone you should be ignoring or dismissing? Certainly not. Of course not. It does. And yet it's exactly what the nation of Israel had done for 200 plus years. In the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, we read these words. The writer said this, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. And so regardless of whether a person wants to or not, or even thinks that they will or not, all of humanity will come before God to give an account for the, of their lives. And so if anyone should have known that and taken that seriously, it should have been God's chosen people, the Jewish people. Instead, they dismissed it. And they dismissed it as something that would never happen to them or it would never happen in their lifetime or whatever it may be. When in actuality, as we're going to see a little bit later, it actually happened and this coming day of the Lord came upon them. They became spiritually blind. They became spiritually deaf. They refused to see. They refused to hear what it was that God was repeatedly trying to say to them. And so you see in verse 10, he said, They hate him who reproves in the gate, and they abhor him who speaks the truth. And so when a person like Amos came along to speak the truth into the lives of the people of Israel, even if it was a painful truth, nonetheless it was a truth, they dismissed that person. They hated that person. Here it says they even abhorred that person for their negativity or their harsh words of judgment or you're so judgmental, all these kinds of things. They hated a guy like Amos. They willfully rejected the light that God in his mercy was bringing to them, and, in they and instead they wanted their preachers uh, that would cause them to feel good about themselves. Maybe challenge them a little, but not, but not too much. As Paul warned in the New Testament, in the last days, the late days I believe we're living in, that in the last days, the people of society, they would want teachers that would suit their own desires. This is what Paul wrote, 2 Timothy. He says, the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. As we see again, they saw teachers that would tickle their ears instead of pricking their hearts. And just like that, back in Amos's day, when a guy like Amos came along, they hated a guy like him. They abhorred a guy like him. They didn't mind going to their service. They didn't mind going to hear sort of this easygoing, man-pleasing, positive and encouraging preacher or teacher, but they didn't want anything to do with those that sought to be faithful to God's word and who sought to speak the truth. Again, even if it was a painful truth, if that's what the Lord was directing. And so men like Amos were hated in northern Israel. And, you know, in our day, so too will you be hated. If you seek to take a stand for truth in this world, as Jesus reminded his disciples, he said, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it has hated you. 
If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of this world, but I chose you out of this world, therefore the world hates you. Now, I do think we need to be careful with that passage. I don't think what Jesus is saying is that we should go out of our way to ensure that the world hates us. We should poke people in the eye, get them all mad at us, and then we're in right where Jesus wants us to be. Rather, I think what it is saying and what it means is this, is that if you are faithful to the light of God's word, those of this world will push back against that light. And sometimes they will do so quite forcefully. As we learn in John's gospel, it tells us this, that men loved and they continue to love darkness rather than light. And so if you are faithful to that light and you proclaim that light, you speak out against sin and the fact that there will be a coming judgment, even people that name the name of God will be angry with you, will push back against that, and will abhor you as they did Amos. And so Amos here, if he didn't know this before he set out to preach, he, he no doubt quickly picked up on this reality that he would not be a popular preacher in the northern kingdom. But Amos doesn't let that uh, dissuade him. It doesn't, it doesn't stop him from doing that which God had sent him to the northern kingdom to do. And so even though he knew that he would be hated for rebuking them, Amos proceeds. Nevertheless, he continues to proclaim his message of judgment without any compromise and without any hesitation. And so again, like the Apostle Paul, Amos, his goal was to speak not to please men, but as it were, to please the Lord. Because it's the Lord that will one day examine both Amos's heart and every one of our hearts as well. And so that's the one Amos sought to please. And so seeking then to be true to God's leading, he proclaims the message that God puts on his heart without compromise. He goes on in verse 11 of our passage, he says, Therefore, because you trample on the poor and you exact taxes of grain from him, you have built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. For I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins. You who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe and turn aside the needy in the gate. So once again, Amos now, he calls out these people for some specific sins in their lives as a nation, as individuals, certainly that make up that nation. And you'll notice once again, we see that the sins are things like the oppression of the poor or corruption in their courts of law or ambivalence toward the needs of those that are needy. Those sorts of sins, the Lord takes notice of them. We may not. We may not think they're that significant uh, or that real. Sure, of course, murder or rape or some of those horrible sins, but these sorts of things, these are the exact things that the Lord points out. And because they acquired all of their wealth through their corrupt ways, Amos makes it abundantly clear to them that they may have gained all of these things, their fancy houses of hewn stones, their pleasant vineyards, uh, and so on. They, they've gained all these things, but they did so through the oppression of the poor, through their bribes, through their corrupt courtrooms. And the Lord says, you may have gained all these things, but you're only going to possess them temporarily. Because Israel had grown rich dishonestly, 
God was not going to allow them to enjoy that wealth. And to quote the Lord, they had gained the whole world, and yet they were in the process of forfeiting away their soul. That is, God was going to bring a judgment on them. Verse 13 continues, it says, Therefore he who is prudent will keep silent in such a time, for it's an evil time. He says, Seek good and not evil, that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you as you have said. He says, Hate evil and love good, and establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. He starts in verse 13 there, and he says to them, uh, <coughs> excuse me, he, he refers to them as being prudent. He says, he who is prudent will keep silent. And, and what that means is that they're not going to bring any excuses. Well, I only sinned in that way because of this. Um, if, my, if my parents loved me more, I wouldn't have done these things. Or if you didn't push me to that level, I wouldn't have responded in that particular way. No excuses. He says, he who is prudent in this time will keep silent. And instead of making excuses, what they should do, and what Amos says God's going to be looking for, uh, to use a New Testament phrase, is that they would bear fruit in keeping with repentance. I like the way the New, Test the New Living Translation translates this. It says, prove by the way that you live that you have repented of, of your sins and turned to the Lord. That's what Amos says God is looking for. And so Amos says to them, keep silent, don't make any excuses here. And he says to them, instead, seek good and not evil. He goes on a little bit later in the verse, verse 15, he says, hate evil and love good. And then show fruit in keeping with that repentance, notice, by establishing justice in the gate. The gate, again, was the seat of government. He says, show fruit of your repentance by establishing justice there in the gate. That's the cure, God's cure, for Israel's sin, that they must begin to simply seek good and not evil, that they must transform their corrupt court system, that they should establish justice at the place of their seat of government. And he says, you, look, you do those things, and perhaps, just perhaps, the Lord will be gracious to a remnant of his people. He makes it clear, what the entirety of Scripture makes clear, that those who turn back toward the Lord will find goodness and mercy being poured back at, uh, upon them. But again, sadly, in this book, verses 16 and 17, it reveals the people still will not listen. And so they're going to be doomed to the coming punishment that Amos is predicting. Amos writes in verse 16, Therefore thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord, in all the squares uh, there shall be wailing. In all the streets they will say, alas, alas. They will call the, farmer, the farmers to mourning and wailing those who are skilled in lamentation. And in all vineyards there will be wailing, for I will pass through your midst, says the Lord. Now we see this in the New Testament, it's a little more familiar to us, that the Jews had this practice of hiring professional mourners. Amos refers to them here as those who are skilled in lamentation. And those professional mourners would assist the, the actual mourners at a person's funeral uh, and, and sort of cause a big commotion so that it was clear we really love this particular person. And Amos describes a judgment that is going to be so widespread 
that there would actually be a shortage of those that were skilled in lamentation, forcing them to go and recruit some farmers to come in as temp workers uh, to mourn the death and the devastation in the nation of Israel. Again, because they would refuse to listen, a swift and a complete judgment was about to come upon them. Amos goes on in verse 18, he says, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord, he says? It is darkness and not light, as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him. Or he went into the house and he leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it at all? Amos says, woe unto you that desire the day of the Lord. Now, the day of the Lord, we learned, we learned about it in the book of Joel. That phrase is used a whole bunch there. The day of the Lord is the day when, when God will intervene in human history by pouring out his judgment on sin and unrighteousness. And it, it certainly refers to an actual day and period of time at the end of this age in which we live. But it, in a more broad sense, it refers to any day in which God's judgment would be poured out on a people or a person. And so here, the people are, the Jewish people that are ripe for God's judgment, the northern kingdom, they're calling for, they're hastening, we can't wait, wait for the day of the Lord when God will pour out his judgment uh, upon the enemy nations that surround us. And think about the whole context of the book. They're completely oblivious to their own sin. They've convinced themselves that the day of the Lord where God is going to judge sin will be a good day for them because God's going to judge all the other nations, but he's not going to actually judge them at all. Somehow they're going to be immune to God's judgment. Amos says to them, look, this is going to be a day of darkness for you, not a day of light. You see that there in verse 18. He says to them, this will be a day like when a man flees from a lion only to come face to face with a bear. He says that it's going to be a day will be, as when a man ran into his house for safety and kind of puts his hand up against the wall so that he can rest and catch his breath only to be bitten by a serpent that had sort of made its way into that wall somehow. And here is Israel in their religious ritualism, all of these things that they had been practicing that we've been looking at here, uh, despite the rebellion, all of these religious things that they had been doing deceiving themselves into thinking that the day of the Lord was going to be a good day for them, when in reality it was going to be a bad day for them. Amos rightly warns them that they have no idea what it is they are asking for, that the day of the Lord was not going to be a glorious day for them, but rather a day of judgment. And it was time for them, this is why Amos is preaching this message, it was time for them to wake up and to realize just how precarious their position before God actually was. And, you know, as I read this, as I think about this, I can't help but think of the myriad of people in our day that have deceived themselves into thinking that though they have given themselves to sin and rebellion, that the day of the Lord will nevertheless be a day of God's judgment on other people and not upon themselves. I mean, how many people have made it abundantly clear that they want nothing to do with the Lord on this side of eternity, yet when they pass, it is said to them that they have somehow gone on to a better place. Well, what is that based on? How do you come to that particular conclusion? It is only based on self-deception. 
And it's what was going on with the nation of Israel. The children of Israel's interpretation of the day of the Lord, it was false. And Amos warns them, therefore, that the day of the Lord is going to be this difficult day to come upon them, a day of darkness and not of light, a day in which they would not be able to, to escape from the Lord's wrath. And so then for them and any of us that are watching today, the desire, the desire for the day of the Lord when their life was out of harmony with the Lord and his principles of righteousness, it was just pure folly. And Amos needed to share that with them. We need to hear that message. Now, of course, those are heavy words. This whole book is a heavy book. But there is a bright spot in these words, particularly as they pertain to us in the day and age in which we live. Because even though we know that there is a coming day of God's judgment upon sin and unrighteousness in this world, here's what we also know. That day has not yet come which means there's still an opportunity, there's still time for any one of us, every one of us that live on this earth to turn back to the Lord, to forsake their sin, to bear fruit uh, in keeping with repentance. That's what Amos is calling to these people. Again, as we read a moment ago, perhaps there will be a remnant that the Lord spares in his mercy, those that did turn back. He says, seek good and live. Now, the people of Israel, you can anticipate they might respond, but God, we're good people. We go to church every week. We go to service every week. We participate in the feast. We bring our various offerings. How could you talk about judging us? Notice what the Lord says. Look at verse 21. We looked at this last week a little bit to make a point. Let's look at it a little more closely. He says, I hate, I despise your feast, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me burnt offerings and grain offerings, he says, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings <coughs> of your fattened animals, I won't even look upon them. He says, take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps, he says, because I will not listen. Again, such an important passage because notice, outwardly, they were going through all the motions of honoring God during this period of Jeroboam's reign. Reign. All right, we're doing all these things, we're sacrificing, we're offering, we're bringing our tithes, we're singing our songs. They're doing all of these things outwardly, but all the while, their hearts were far from the Lord. And so while they said they were coming to honor the Lord in these ways, God was actually dishonored by their unholy practices that they gave themselves over to. He was not pleased by the fact that they made some effort. In actuality, he was displeased by these religious efforts. Again, look at the words that are used there. Words like he hated and he despised. And he even refers to their songs of worship as just noise or a clanging gong, to use the Apostle Paul's reference. What God wanted, we see in verse 24, he wanted righteousness. He says, let justice roll down like the waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Israel's religion had become a cloak for them, if you will, which they could hide their sin under. But it was a cloak that the Lord saw right through. He saw through their feast days. He saw through their holy assemblies. He saw through their various offerings and their, their religious songs. He saw through all of those things there. And what he longed for, what he really wanted from them, was justice 
and righteousness in their dealings with other people. And I wonder this morning, as we consider these things, I wonder if some of us, maybe all of us, to some degree, are guilty of separating sort of the religious things that we do, the ceremonies that we perform, from the dishonorable way in which we treat other people, as if they're, they're two completely opposite things that have nothing to do the one with the other. Notice here that God is not interested in that game, and he's certainly not interested in playing the game. I'm reminded of Jesus' words in the New Testament. This is Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus says, look, if you bring your gift to the altar, that's a religious duty, you bring your gift to the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, Jesus said, leave your gift at the altar before it and go your way, because he says, first, be reconciled to your brother, and then you can come and offer your gift. So, so often what we do is we separate sort of our religion and our religious things that we do from sort of our everyday handling and treating other people. Our relationship with our fellow man is just as important as our relationship with the Lord. And by that, what I mean is those two don't exist in exclusivity. And so, look, if you have convinced yourself that you can treat those around you like dirt, but that everything is good between you and God because you performed your little duties or your vows or you went to church or you gave your offering or whatever it may be, you need to hear what Israel needed to hear. You're sorely mistaken if you think that is the case. That was the mistaken conclusion that Israel had come to. And now they were facing the consequences of their error. Again, Israel might object, but God, we're your chosen people. Remember our history? Remember you know, how you called us out unto yourself? Remember the way in which we sacrificed to you and we offered to you all these things in the past? So notice how the Lord replies. Perhaps they did say that or think that. Verse 25, it says, Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? And then he says, You, you shall take up Sukkoth your king and Keon your star god, your images that you made for yourself. Speaking through Amos, the Lord says, look, I remember your various shrines and your pillars to the gods of Egypt and the surrounding nations. Uh, he says there, Sukkoth was one of their shrines. Kion was sort of this pillar, this image that they had set up there for themselves. Not to God, or even if they said it was to God, it was not what God wanted, but it was to these false gods. So did Israel sacrifice and bring the prescribed offering? Sure they had, from the days of the wilderness even until this very day. But at the same time, they were offering up these other sacrifices and offerings to these false gods that they had learned to worship by observing the nations that were around them. Israel's history was a repeated history of returning to idolatry, honoring the Lord in certain ways, doing certain things that he had instructed that they should be doing, but at the same time, honoring these other false gods as well. And it was hypocrisy. And the Lord is calling them out for it. And he finally says to them, verse 27, I will send you into exile beyond Damascus. Now, Damascus is the capital of the Assyrian Empire. And it's the Assyrian Empire that's going to come in from the north, make their way into the northern kingdom, defeat the northern kingdom, and lead the people away into captivity. And as I've been pointing out, God had been trying to get the attention of Israel through one means after the other after the other, sending people there, bringing upon them various degrees of calamity. And Israel had finally gotten to this place 
where extreme correction would be needed. And that would come at the hands of the Assyrian Empire, who would take the people off into captivity and into exile. Now, chapter 6 continues, and I'll remind you that in our Bibles, uh, chapter breaks weren't initially there. They were added later on just to make the Bible a little more convenient for us to use. And as I pointed out at the beginning of our study today, this fourth and final sermon of Amos starts in chapter 5, and it ends at the end of chapter 6. And so it continues right on through. So picking up where we left off at the end of 5, notice what Amos says in chapter 6.1. He says, Woe to those who are at ease in Zion, and to those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria, the notable men of the first of the nations to whom the house of Israel comes. Amos pronounces a woe to those that are at ease in Zion. Now this is the second woe, there's going to be three total. This is the second woe that Amos mentions in this book and in this particular sermon. The first you recall was back in chapter 5 verse 18 where the Lord declared that this coming day of the Lord that the people desired was certainly not a day that they should have been looking forward to. Here, he says, woe to those who are at ease in Zion and feel, who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria. Now, I'll remind you, Zion is also known as Jerusalem. I'll remind you that Jerusalem was the place, uh, the special place of God's presence, if you will. It was where the temple was. It was where his presence dwelled in a special and a unique way in all of the earth. And Zion symbolizes the Jewish people's unique relationship, particularly the relationship that they have with the Lord. And as far as Samaria, Samaria, recall, was the capital of the northern kingdom. It was this walled city that was built up on top of a hill. And so both of those places, both Zion and Samaria, were places where the Jewish people could take their ease, either literally uh, as with Samaria, or perhaps in sort of this spiritual sense based on their relationship with the God of Zion. Nothing, as far as the Israelites were concerned, was going to be able to come against them or harm them if they ran to those particular cities. Surely nothing is going to happen to us in the place where God's presence dwells in a unique way. <coughs> and surely nothing is going to happen to us in the safety of our well-fortified city. And so again, or I ask, why wouldn't the people feel at ease? Well, the people of Samaria, they felt secure because of their various defenses, just as the people of Jerusalem felt secure, because this is God's home. God's not going to let anyone come into his home. But both were foolish to think this. They were foolish to think that they could trust uh, in these things while all, the, all the while ignoring the Lord. And so, woe to you who are at ease. He goes on in verse 2. He says, pass over to Calne and see, and from there go to Hamath the great. Then go down to Gath of the Philistines. Are you better than these kingdoms? Or is their territory uh, greater than your territory? Now, Calma, uh, Calna, Hamath, and Gath, each of them were once uh, sort of these strong, fortified cities of the surrounding areas. They didn't belong to Israel. They belonged to some of the neighboring nations. And each one of them had been destroyed by God's hand of judgment uh, in one way or another, one fashion or another. We, we were kind of introduced to some of them in the opening chapters of this book. 
And so each of those nations strongly fortified, they could be at ease, uh, and all of these sorts of things, and yet each one of them has been destroyed. Notice what Amos says, are you better than each of these kingdoms? Essentially what God is saying through Amos is this, why should I preserve you if I did not preserve them? And each of those cities, they had been judged for their sin. And so then is it reasonable to expect that Israel's fate would be any different? Of course not. Verse 3 goes on, he says, O you who put far away the day of disaster, and you bring near the seat of violence. Now, I want you to see something that Amos is doing here, because in the previous chapter, in chapter 5, verse 18, when he pronounced that woe against them, it was because they hastened the day of the Lord, thinking that the day of God's judgment would have no impact upon them. Everybody else would be judged, but not them. Here now we see that they embrace the idea that there will be a day of judgment, but notice that it's a day that is so far off, such a long way off, that in their mind, it's a day that's never really going to happen anyway. It's just so far away from us, why even give it any thought? And so you see in verse 3, he says, Oh, you who put far away the day of disaster and bring near the seat of violence. And it's such a dangerous place to be because they've become convinced of their sin and the judgment that will come upon them because of that sin, but because they got plenty of time, they make no effort to deal with that sin. Again, they're thinking to themselves, there's plenty of time. They'll deal with it, just not now. And so they put it off, and they put it off, and they put it off, until eventually the judgment is upon them, and there is no more time to put it off. Amos goes on, he says, Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory, and they stretch themselves out on their couches, and they eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall. They sing their idle songs to the sound of the harp, and like David, they invent for themselves instruments of music. They drink wine in bowls, and they anoint themselves with the finest of oils, but they are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. You might say, who's Joseph? Joseph would be representative of the nation of Israel. Life could not be any better for the northern kingdom in 755 BC. As he says here, they had their ivory beds. They could stretch themselves out on their, upon their couches. They could dine on the finest of meats from their flock and from their stalls. They could waste their days away singing their idle songs while they drank wine from the bowl full. And they can anoint themselves with the finest of oils. Again, life couldn't be any better for the northern kingdom in 755 BC. But despite all of this, Israel, and particularly the fortified city of Samaria, would be the first to go into exile while her testing and her, her life, her luxurious living, all of those things would come to a quick end. As we see in verse 7, it says, Therefore they shall now be the first of those who go into exile. And the revelry of those who stretch themselves out will pass away. Notice what Amos continues. He kind of doubles down here. It says, The Lord God has sworn by himself, declares the Lord, the God of hosts. I abhor the pride of Jacob. I hate his strongholds. And I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. And if ten men remain in one house, they will die. And one's relative, the one who anoints him for burial, will take him up to bring the bones out of the house and will say to him who is in the innermost parts of the house, if, is there still anyone with you? And the man will say no, and he'll say, silence, 
we must not mention the name of the Lord. Verse 11, for behold, the Lord commands, and the great house shall be struck down into fragments, and the little house into bits. Do horses run on rocks? Does one plow uh, there with oxen? But you have turned justice into poison, and the fruit of righteousness into bitterness or wormwood. You who rejoice in Lodabar, who say, Have we not by our own strength captured Carnaim for ourselves? For behold, I will raise up against you a nation, O house of Israel, declares the Lord, the God of hosts, and they will oppress you from Lebo Hamath to the brook of the Arabah. A lot of material there, but the gist is this. Because Israel refused to turn from their sin, the Holy One has to come against even his own people, and take his discipline to that next level so that the nation would come to their senses. Again, I keep thinking of that account of the prodigal son. And when life began to get very, very difficult for him, it was in that difficulty caused by his own sin, but it was in that difficulty that God brought him back to his senses. And that's what God needs to do with the nation of Israel. And they have finally come to this place where the last thing that he could do is pour out his judgment upon them in the form of an enemy nation coming in and leading the people off into captivity. Again, as we've been saying, that next level of, uh, of, of judgment from the Lord was the invasion of the Assyrian army. And the captivity that took place, it started in 722 BC, and it went on for uh, 100 years or so. Um, Northern Kingdom never really returned um, from it, just sort of in dribs and drabs. Um, verse 14, he says, Behold, I'll raise up against you a nation, O house of Israel. And again, that's the nation, the empire of the Assyrians. Notice also in verse 14, it says, They'll oppress you from Lebo Hamath to the brook of Arabah. Uh, Hamath was sort of the extreme north. The, book, the valley of Arabah, the brook of Arabah, that was sort of the extreme south. And the point there being, it would be a complete and total conquest of the land at the hand of a foreign people. And so again, this, this is the sermon. This is what Amos presented to them, his fourth and final sermon. And once more, it's a heavy sermon. It's a heavy passage for us to consider this morning. But I have to be honest with you, it is so very important that we do consider these things. Israel had lulled itself to sleep thinking that because of their unique place as a child of God, or because of a few religious acts that they performed each week or from time to time, whatever it may be, they, they lulled themselves to, to thinking because of those things that they could continue to live in rebellion to God and his ways and that there would be no consequence. And so despite repeated warnings to the contrary, they refused to respond, and thus judgment became inevitable upon them. And as I read that, as I think about that, I can't help but think of how easy it would be for you and I to fall into the same place ourselves. How easy it would be for us to think, well, I'm a Christian, quote unquote, or I go to church, or because I've been baptized, or, or these kinds of things, that because of that, we can continue to live any which way we want, despite God's repeated admonitions in both his word, by the preaching of his word, by the conviction of his spirit, to the contrary. Israel ignored the Lord to their own detriment, and so too would you and I. As we learned last week, the Bible teaches us that the Lord disciplines the one 
that he loves. And if a, a small measure of discipline doesn't accomplish his purposes, he'll bring a greater measure of discipline and a greater one after that. He'll do what he needs to do to bring us to the place of repentance. And so I want to encourage you in our study of this book, and in some regards, now that we're in our fourth study of the book of Amos, the message is kind of becoming a little bit repetitive because it's the same message about a coming judgment and how we are to respond when God brings conviction on us. But I just want to say this, perhaps one more time. If God has been impressing something upon your heart, that there's an area in your life that you need to confess to him as sin and then forsake it because it is sin, then I just want to encourage you and please receive my exhortation this morning. Do just that. Confess it as sin and forsake it because it is sin. I'm going to close with this final scripture. Again, we looked at it last week. It's Hebrews chapter 3, verse 15, and it says this, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as they did in the day of the rebellion. Let's pray together. And Father, I, I have to imagine, Lord, some of us that are watching this this morning really need to take heed today. Lord, over these last few weeks, or maybe even just today, you've been really speaking to us about an area of our lives, and we've been ignoring you, minimizing what it is you've been trying to communicate to us, rationalizing that what you call sin is just the way things are done in the day and age in which we live. And Lord, you've been graciously, mercifully trying to call us back to yourself, to agree with you that sin is sin, to put it aside, and to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And Lord, I want to pray for those that may be watching that need to do that. Would you fill them right now with the faith and the courage and the strength to do that? And Lord, every one of us, there are no doubt areas of our lives that need to be brought into submission to you. Would you, in your grace and your mercy, Put your hand on a particular area in every one of our lives. And again, give us the courage to respond in obedience and to walk in that obedience. And so, Lord, bless your word that we have considered this morning, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.